The Mike Tamano Happening. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, here we go. Since we've last spoken, my beloved listeners, the world has continued to spin farther and farther out of control into chaos and confusion, for sure. And this past week, man, the world of comedy lost a monster talent. Big blow to our hearts when uh, Norm MacDonald left us. A comics comic. You know, I reserved the term genius for very, very few, but I think Norm deserves it. His ability to find the funny was as natural as Richard Pryor. And Norm's charm came from his underlying disregard for anything pretentious. And it surfaced every time that he spoke. He was an amazing talk show guest, a great comic writer, a great comic performer. And he was 100% honest, 100% of the time. And every time I saw Norm, he seemed to be enjoying the ride and enjoyed grabbing the wheel and causing the proverbial vehicle of the ride to take a dangerous swerve whenever possible. And uh, I have an autographed photo in my studio that has hung here for years. He passed through town uh, a good 10 years ago, and uh, he sent me an autographed photo that says, Mike, don't smoke crack, Norm MacDonald. And he, he was among the best ever. And I say that with no hyperbole or attribution to the circumstance surrounding his death. I watched him in awe. And uh, every single time he made me laugh, he made me think. And he did things his own way. He was fearless. And he was hysterical. Brilliant. A brilliant, brilliant light has gone out. Godspeed, Norm MacDonald. Over the weekend, uh, my family held its 10th annual trout dog outdoor family adventure camp where we take kids who have never experienced the great outdoors and nature and what it has to offer out into the woods and on the water and we fish and we hike and we canoe and we shoot archery and we teach them gun safety and we had a conservation officer come out and speak to them about the role that man has as steward of natural ground it was a beautiful beautiful time it always is you know introducing 50 new children to the adventure that awaits them beyond the pavement uh, makes me beam with pride and the smiles upon their faces as they reel in their first fish or take a canoe out into a lake to seek adventure or they fling an arrow into their first bullseye this is priceless stuff so i want to thank all the volunteers and sponsors who help us do this every year and continue to uh, promote my father's legacy well today we're going to talk to lothar keller and lothar is an amazing musician producer sound engineer television producer record label entrepreneur and uh, he's an amazing cat and i'm looking forward to speaking with him and having you hear his story on the mike tomano happening my guest on this episode is the amazing lothar keller whose life is lived in a world of creativity and he's a multi-instrumentalist producer engineer owner of the Qumran label and uh, he's a technical engineer for wgn television lead guitarist backup vocalist for doom legends the skull as well as progressive metal band sacred dawn and you also front you're the lead vocalist for a uh, power metal band divinity compromise so welcome lothar how are you hey doing okay thank you for having me well, you know, it's a. It, I, I ran into you at a concert. It was, what, what was it, almost a year year ago in February. 
Yeah. That's, and, uh, wow, Fitzgeralds. Fitzgeralds and Berwin, and I was yeah. I was already friends with your uh, then girlfriend, now lovely wife, Rena, and yeah. we started talking. And it seemed you were one of those guys I started talking to that it seemed like we knew each other for decades, and it just was a natural yeah. fit. Yeah, absolutely. It did feel that way. Yeah. So, well, the crux of this podcast is I try to expose people to creative lives in different areas of entertainment and art. And there's a lot to get to with you. But, I mean, first, we have to address, um, you know, so many in the metal community are aware of it. And your band, The Skull, has been dealt quite the blow this year with the passing of Eric Wagner. And, you know, many people remember him um as as the lead vocalist in trouble which is a legendary band as well and then he formed the skull so i want to kind of just get your reflections on that i know it's it's relatively recent and uh it just it it took the music world by uh by a big blow to the music world yeah it really did i mean to be honest with you it still doesn't feel real um closure hasn't happened yet because family hasn't even had a chance to even have their uh um funeral uh, just just because of dealing with the physics of uh the fact that he was in texas and trying to get every you know mm. cremation and ashes back to his family there's a process um but yeah this this was definitely a, a huge loss not even just for us as a band and me as a friend uh, and him as a friend, but uh, for the entire world, as I mean, dude, I'm I'm not even kidding. You know, there was a point where I just had to stop looking at social media. Well, yeah, <laughs> it, it just got very overwhelming, and uh, close friends from all over the world contacting me to you know find out what they can, and uh, you know, answers weren't always there. Uh, it was a very odd thing how it all went about but then i guess again maybe it's not uh but uh this this is a definite major blow yeah. um and he was too young i mean he was only 62 right um he had more life in him um you know we were halfway through writing a third record um which we're you know right now we're really not sure where that's going to go but you know he did manage to at least get uh, the masters and and approved for Black Fingers' third record, which will be the final work of his, you know, yeah, doing. Life, yeah, uh, it's kind of interesting how that came about, though, uh, because you know his previous two records with Black Finger, he had fixed band members. You know, each record had different band members, but they were the same guys. They went on tour together and stuff like that, and. You know, each guy covered her part there on every song, but this one, uh, he went about it a bit different, and he invited friends and fellow musicians that he's jammed with over the years. So, I'm kind of excited to see how this actually, because I haven't even had a chance to hear it yet. Yeah, right. So uh, it's kind of cool, bittersweet, uh, but I mean, uh, you know, this is what we're facing now. Um, yeah. The Doom Legend is uh, gone. The Doom Legend, yeah, Doompa, and it's uh, yeah, Doompa. That's what we. <laughs> that's what I always call them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and and you know, to keep it on the on the upside of you know, when you look at someone's legacy, the outpouring of absolute love 
there's an outpouring every single day. It's all over social media because he meant so much to that genre. And, you you know, but in in just looking at the harsh reality of it, the band in a tour, uh, in addition to the devastation and grieving, like you said, you're not even wrapping your head and your heart around it yet. But there's actual tons of business that needs to be addressed. And so it's got to be a stressful. So our heart goes out to you, especially uh, during this time and all the other members of the band and the community. Um, but talk about becoming a member of the skull. And then I want to get into your background because it's fascinating. Right. Well, I, I actually started getting to know Eric, uh, early on. The funny thing is when sacred dawn formed our very first gig in Aurora, Illinois, <laughs> he was happened to be at the bar that night. And, uh, I got to meet him. Was that the rock it, house? Uh, no, the remember? rock house had already closed. <laughs> okay. Doug, it was still Doug Agee or Agee. Uh, yeah, right. He, right. Uh, so he was still the owner, but I, he had to move from that location and he moved to another location. I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, Indian Trail Road or something, but it wasn't right in downtown. It was just a little bit north of like where the roundhouse is. Um, a little bit bigger, you know, there was some pros and cons to it but nevertheless he called it doug's american bar and grill or grill and bar or something like that okay and he you know was still doing the metal and the rock support and having bands play there and like i said that night eric just happened to be there because you know he he was he was always hanging there i was his hangout spot and uh somebody said hey eric wagner from troubles here is like you're kidding me yeah it's like what's the likelihood of that right right uh so it was a brief meeting and stuff and it was cool but uh, then you know years go by and i even caught uh trouble there was a really cool club it was in addison called legends right, right off of uh you remember that place oh yeah absolutely yeah 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 um sacred dawn played there all the time but i remember trouble was doing a warm-up show before they were going to europe uh this is in 2008 and um i remember because eric had i guess cut all his hair off for uh locks of love so he donated his hair and it was just starting to grow back so you know how like uh howard stern's hair is now it's it was a lot like that yeah know? right uh, Thick just, and just curly, starting yeah. to grow out yeah 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 uh but of, of course you know sounded great and that's what they did you know trouble and even the skull did you know there's warm-up shows before you go out because you know you know you want to rehearse the yeah work it out right uh and then a couple years later i saw them with Corey, um at chicago city limits in schaumburg that was that was interesting but um (laughs) uh, as i digress um there was uh, a moment when i did meet ron and that was when sacred dawn um and earth and grave were on the same bill. It was one of Scott Davidson's. Um, oh, Rebel Radio! At the, yeah, at, at, it was at the Metro. Yes, I, 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 early the, in my career, I was one of uh, the Rebel Radio disc jockeys, and boy, ah. the stories I could tell you from those studios. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, Scott uh, Davidson is a—he's—he's he's just a, a prince amongst uh, the metal community. He keeps that music on the radio. Hey, you know, and I'm glad he does because nobody else is you know a lot of stuff is kind of dying like that a lot of that metal radio right uh it's it's a shame i know a lot of stuff's in streaming and some people say oh, i don't even listen to that FM or radio anymore it's like well 
I said, I mean, in some cases, I guess I can understand if you're hearing the same 20 songs cycled every day. But yeah. I said, how do you discover sometimes new things unless you're always on YouTube or always on Spotify? And, I, you know, I know why people use them. But, yeah, sure. Um, you know, totally works. It still gets the music out there. But the one thing I feel like you mess with, like a Spotify, is there's not a DJ pumping you up about, hey, there's exactly. a God, you got to hear this. It's it being presented. Exactly. Yeah. Presenting yeah. it, sharing the experience with you. And plus, yeah. it's commercial radio, which, you know, uh, gets royalties for bands. The problem I have with so many streaming situations is it's devastated the music industry. But that's a, we'll get to that later in the conversation. Oh, yeah. Let's yeah. Get, back to, uh, yeah. get back to you hooking up with the skull. Yeah. So uh, we were all playing that show, and I just happened to, again, quick brief meeting with Ron, and um, bands played that night. Everything was cool. Uh, Sacred Dawn was getting ready to do their second record release, and we were signed to uh, Dark Star Records as well as Blackfinger, which involves Eric. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there was... Uh, Again, the the whole label make camaraderie shows were being put together, and bands would be on the same bill together. And um, again, this is how I get to meet Eric. His Blackfinger was playing one night, and I'll, God, I'll never forget it. It was uh, as an Elgin. I'm trying to remember the name of the place, uh, but um, Blackfinger was playing, and it was with his first lineup and his first record. Uh, and it's this, you know, this is kind of funny stuff, but there's always a point in the set when Eric has to go pee. Well, I'll just put it out there. <laughs> so you plan these songs accordingly, and I, I, you know, I can tell you what ours is, but he left to go pee. Now, mind you, ever people were feeding him shots before he got up on stage, and I think it hit them all at once. He was gone for like 10 minutes and the mm. band just kept framing. Mm-hmm. Like, where is this guy? Somebody had to go to the to go get him. I was like, dude, you got to get back up on stage. <laughs> so fast forward a little bit. I I had joined in a and played in a cover band for about a year or so. And they were actually recording at Doug's studio. And Eric happened to be living there at the time. So he was hanging out. And he came up to me. He's like, dude. He's like, I got to tell you. He's like, I'm really sorry that that's how you had to see me that night. Mm. I'm like, dude, no, 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 no worries. He's like, no, no, you don't understand. <laughs> and yeah, I was right. like, all right. It hit him. Right. Yeah, right. It hit him like a rock. And he's like, I, I don't like getting drunk like that. That wasn't fun. I was like, he's like, I don't remember a thing. I was like, I'm not surprised. But see, it was also his birthday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so people, you know, they're doing what they do. It's like, hey, let me buy you a shot. And then he'd start losing track. So I said, dude, don't even worry about it. He's like, all right, that's cool, man. You know, and then just more chit chat over the years. Well, it was um, Mike Smith, does Merciful Mike Productions. Uh, he was gearing up the days of the Doom Fest up in Milwaukee. Right. And Blackfinger earth and grave and even jeff ole olson the first drummer of trouble his band retrograde they're all playing this fest now i wasn't even involved yet i'm just telling you how the skull basically became an idea right and so since they are all there they decided hey why don't we three jam ole ron and eric and uh, they used the two guys from blackfinger because they already knew 
several trouble songs because obviously with eric and the band you're gonna have to do trouble songs it's like you can't go watch john oliva or circle of circle and not expect to sabotage it absolutely right so that's what they did and eric at the end of the night is like you know you look just like the bass player from trouble and that guy right there he just happens to look like the drummer too and i kind of look like the singer he's like what what if we kind of started a little tribute or something like that so now the next year um through some calls and contacts there was an offer to play a festival over in germany and they're like wow okay so let's put something together so the next thing then was to start finding guitar players um and my name was thrown in the hat um along with larry roberts from november's doom glenn drover from megadeth i mean it was like i said they were just just looking at all different people and um i got the call it's like hey you know um what would you feel about you know joining the skull and i'm like huh yeah he's like <laughs> he explained to me what the skull was going to be i said that, he's like you know what it is i mean it sounds like the second record from trouble he's like you're on to something he's like basically trouble wasn't really playing much of the old stuff and a lot of fans were wanting to hear that stuff so when we first got together and even in the very first lineup i even pulled over my other sacred dawn guitar player michael carpenter who was playing with us at the time and he was temporarily the guitar player until we um got matt goldsboro but um we started working on a set list of the first two records that was and then we picked a couple i we had to do end of my days there was no way around that but they said let's dominate our set list around this early stuff so that's really basically how it was born ron gave me a call said hey let's go meet up for lunch let's discuss details and then it pretty much became official at that moment so that would have been spring of 2000 i think 2012 yeah yeah i think it was 2012 flies by flies by god almighty it's been it's almost 10 years almost 10 years well, you got three bands, so we're going to talk about juggling three bands in a moment. But I want to go back to your childhood. Now, you grew up in North Carolina, correct? Yeah. And musical family. Tell us about what you were exposed to as a kid with your family's uh, love of music. Well, I mean, pretty much ever since I was born, it was, it was around me. My uh, father was a bassoon player in the uh, symphony. Um, not not an piano. easy instrument to play. No, (laughs) you're forcing a lot of air through something that's thinner than a straw. It's amazing. Yeah, you got it. And so I was always going to whatever performances he was doing. I'll never forget when they, you know, this was the big one for me is when they did the Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, right. Because this was this would have been in 1978, I think. Yeah, so you were all wound up in that. Oh man, big time, big time. And so, I mean, obviously, so I had a definite love for uh, classical music, and that's how I grew up. But the first instrument my father gave me when I was five years old was what everybody knew in elementary school, and that was the recorder. Right. 
So you can imagine by the time I was in sixth grade, I'm playing circles around all these kids. (laughs) (laughs) He's the Jimi Hendrix of the recorder. What the? And they're like, and they saw my recorder like, man, that's a nice one. I'm like, yeah, that's what my father gave me. It's the cheap one he had. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. because everybody had those awful yellow uh, banana ones. Yeah, the plastic ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, you know, it, again, it's a tool to learn something, and and again, sight reading, all this stuff. As I got a little around nine years old, I found a trumpet in my uh, grandmother's attic, and I'm like, "Hey, what's this?" She said, "Oh, that's your uncle Joe's. He died when he was testing aircraft. He used to do uh, air." Uh, airplane testing oh, wow. back in the back in the 30s i think that's a tough gig uh, yeah. that's how that's how he died ultimately was a plane crash uh but um it was his trumpet so he had bought it so this this trumpet i've had all these years is from like the early 1900s wow but it was pretty it was pretty beat up it looked like somebody took a hammer to the end of the bell of it my <laughs> I, I told my father's like my grandmother's like well you can you can have it if you're interested in really pursuing it i'm like no absolutely because i love the trumpet yeah that was one i mean uh oh god yeah that was that was my that was the instrument i really focused on it in the symphonies and so took it to a place got it fixed up and started taking lessons yeah (laughs) pretty much right away um the guitar was kind of something honestly it was um something i started dabbling with when i was like 10 or 11 my dad had this uh, nylon classical and i would sit around and play but honestly the the first instrument i was actually more interested in was the bass because when i was like five or six i heard uh, the total mass retain and uh the paul simon cut of america mm. from yes i was like whoa this is cool so i was a yes fan yeah chris squire <laughs> going crazy on that and yeah. the sound of his bass man got me going so i was like I, this, that's what i want to play isn't it but, that's odd that as a kid you were tuned into specific instruments i mean so yes. therein lies like kind of the seed of a composer or someone that's going to because most people in and everybody adults and children you listen to the song but yeah. musicians tend to key in on the s- specific sound so that's funny that the chris chris squire's bass in america drew you in and so you were going to be a bass player okay at at first that's what i was thinking and then i heard starship trooper and that distorted tremolo bass at the end i mean like i said he played and and i think it was the different sounds he was pulling in too yeah Um, yeah because again high register too with that rickenbacker yeah Yeah. oh oh yeah it Uh, cut right through the band yeah very unique and i loved just the use of the wah-wah, the envelope filters, the fuzz, everything. Yeah. Um, and even flanger to that. I mean, effects are kind of what I started paying attention to, which gets me gets later into being a sound engineer. But um, I, just, I just loved it. And I was like, okay, well, I got this guitar here, so I tried playing it like a bass. <laughs> okay. And it started getting a little bit cumbersome like eh, okay i mean I, I can't really tune it down low enough but uh there was we were living in raleigh durham area at the time and there's there's a radio station still to this day chainsaw 88 
uh, out of I think it's part of the Wake Forest University. They uh, played metal constantly, and I just happened to stumble on this station, and I heard "Die with Your Boots On" from Iron Maiden, uh, "Balls to the Wall" from Accept, right, um, right, Def Leppard, Photograph, you know, Judas Priest. Started hearing all these different bands, and I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, wait a second. And then I start hearing all these really cool guitar leads, and I'm like, you know got this guitar here i might as well just start trying to figure this out a lot of people make the leap to the guitar because they're like okay i'm gonna learn the bass anyway by playing the guitar i'm gonna learn how to you know because there's it's part of it so yeah that's it's funny you mentioned chris squire because i was listening to his um I, I have this ritual here, Lothar, where I do the dishes before my wife gets home. Yeah. <laughs> and I was I always pick an album to put on because our, our stereo system is near the kitchen. And I, I listen to the uh, Fish Out of Water by Chris Squire. And, you, you know, you're talking about that, oh, that high yeah. register stuff and yep. and how it drew you in. So, so when you're listening to and, and it's funny you mentioned effects too because i wrote that down i want to talk about you as an engineer i got so much to talk to you about it's so good to talk <laughs> to your brother but Absolutely. so you're being drawn in so the metal and i'm guessing you're hearing metal on the radio with these searing guitar leads and and you had already had an appreciation for the grandiose sounds of classical music which it lends itself to metal and so right so here you are and how old were you when this was kind of taking hold of you about uh, I was ten. Ten. Okay, so you're hearing metal yeah. radio on this independent yeah. radio station. Yeah. And, and did um, you grab a guitar? I basically took the guitar I had, and I grabbed a couple of pieces of metal and quarters and start taping them on the body, just to emulate distortion. Um, oh my! God. <laughs> and start you're playing. a sound and, fanatic. I love this. Okay. <laughs> and uh, because. Because I had nylon strings, every time I kept breaking one, and I was using pennies that my father had flattened on the railroad when the train went by. Right, as, right. As a pick, I kept cutting through the nylon, so I found some fishing line and started using that. Wow, <laughs> it didn't sound that great, but it worked. Yeah, you may be uh, onto something there. Tom Waits, uh, Tom Waits would probably use something like that on one of his records. A, you you a, never know. A fishing fishing line guitar. I love it. <laughs> And um, did that for, yeah, a couple of years, really. And uh, <laughs> about the time that we had finally moved, because uh, my father was going to Duke uh, University Divinity School to become a pastor. Okay. And so we, there was a lot of moving. I, I, if you can figure this out, I've moved 22 times in my life. Wow. So, and I'm only 49. But we... Uh, we had moved to a town. Um, so at this point, I was 12. And the kid across the street, I saw wearing the Def Leppard British flag shirt. Like, huh, I bet he likes metal. <laughs> <laughs> you have a kindred spirit. Okay. Yeah. And still friends with the guy to this day. Uh, but he, uh, we started talking one day. I was mowing the lawn on my mower. And he was a couple years older than me and just chit chatting and. He found out that I played guitar, so I went and bought whatever I could get mm. and got this really cheap Sears guitar for like 20 bucks Yeah, from a guy and uh, started experimenting with, since I didn't have an amp, I was like, well, how am I going to get distortion? 
Well, if you remember the old tape deck, some of them had the quarter-inch plug so you could plug a microphone into it. Yes, right. Yeah. So I figured out that if I plugged into that and set it into record and cranked the input level, that it would give me distortion through my stereo. Look at this, man. <laughs> so I started dragging my stereo over to this kid. What a resourceful kid. I don't have an amp, but I'm going to I'm gonna leap. Before I get the amp, I'm going to get into distortion. How do I do that? That's fantastic. That is something else. Yeah. And each each, each tape deck had a different sound, like different distortion pedals all sound different. Well, so did tape decks, you know. Wow. And I and my favorite one was this old black face Panasonic with these big silver knobs on it. It was it was great. Um, but there was a point where I did have to <laughs> adjust. Uh, <laughs> I might want to get an amp. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's too cool. That so is amazing. So at this point. Um, between my buddy across the street and then whenever i started going to started in it was junior high so i'd have been in seventh grade started figuring out who all the other little metal heads are yeah right and there was this one black kid named jermaine williams and he's like hey you ever heard of ingve momsting i'm like no i can't oh, even dude, say I'll, it what he's <laughs> like I'll, I'll, I'll bring you the tape tomorrow i was like really okay and uh and then he said what about grim reaper I was like no he's like all right i'll bring you the tides so we started doing tape trading and he started introducing me to all this stuff i'm like man I, I, i've never heard this stuff uh and then he's like yeah man i'm, I'm gonna learn how to play bass i want to be like steve harris and i'm like all right <laughs> i'm starting to think i got you a know, band and, we're gonna have a and band so, and so it just starts culminating so it's basically you know several years of jamming with all these guys that i started meeting but i got introduced to punk rock and stuff like that and and then doom metal was another one yeah um and that's where trouble comes into play because i was like uh i was i think 14 when run to the light came out i'm trying to remember yeah. i think that's about right for well i was in 87 yeah so yeah i think it was like yeah i might have been 15 then yeah and uh yeah because i'm six years older than you so i would have been uh i would have been in my yeah like 20 yeah so mm -hmm. yeah so you're about 15 then and that yeah and that whole tape trading thing that was and it still yeah. remains to this day like this obsession to trade stuff that you would never heard before that's amazing that's that's the best stuff about being a music fan oh yeah and and then if you really like it you wanted to go buy it anyway you bought the album uh, yeah absolutely. because you know how the copy and tapes work you know you'd record straight off the tape and it'd be like minus 20 db oh, yeah, yeah uh, right. unless you had a way to adjust the input level but um after a while you're like yeah i want to go get the real thing you know so either it was buying vinyl or cassettes which cassettes were really convenient but that's how we did it you know it was tape yeah. trading and copying stuff or making mixtapes i used to listen to metal metal shop every night so that's how i started hearing sabotage and yeah there's a lot of stuff actually yeah because what i would do is i'd put my uh because i knew i could get at least 90 minutes on on a tape i would just put it in record when i fell asleep um, yeah because you know i had to get up for school or whatever yeah worked out quite well but um it was i was like a sponge yeah absolute sponge
Um, I still am like that, and and it's like I'm always looking to get turned on to new stuff, and mm-hmm. uh, whatever you know, I like different genres of music. So, jazz is a scary rabbit hole because you start buying records just because of who played bass, or oh, look at Tommy Flanagan's playing piano on this, and you end up just yeah. collecting and collecting and collecting. It's the same thing with metal because you know you get into a certain specific subgenre, and then oh, this band, oh, th- they sound like this, or this turns you on to that and it never ends yeah but that's the fun of it it is it is so you're kicking around and this is still in north carolina you're playing with, north carolina you're playing with bands and uh when did you kind of say i'm gonna i'm gonna go into the arts i'm gonna become either a musician or i know you went to school for recording arts so let's talk yeah. about that well um i had a uh christian metal band i'd started back then called IHS and when we were actually serious about wanting to do a actual recording and a record because we had written enough material um, my father said well let's go do some shopping so he started calling up a bunch of different recording studios and just checking the places out getting a feel for it <clears throat> and um then we stumbled on this one place that he had gotten word of that was right in the, uh, just down the road from us in uh, Hickory, North Carolina. It was a place called Hicks Studios. Uh, so we went there to go talk to the guy and played him what we had recorded. But he said, well, I want to come to a, one of your rehearsals. It's like, okay, cool. So he came and he checked us out and he was blown away. He's like, I, I want to get involved. He's like, absolutely. Uh, in fact, he wanted to produce or co-produce. So he, you know, gave us a really good deal. Um, and then as he started talking to me, he saw my absolute interest in the entire process. Mm. And, our, and I had already been doing recording because I had a four track when I was, 13 my parents got me for christmas and bought a pa doing live sound because we needed a pa in order to play shows right um so he knew i was already in tune with stuff and he brought up he's like oh you ever heard of a band called gentle giant or you're right heap and i was like well actually yeah i said i've heard of Uriah heap i said because years ago when my uncle was losing his hearing he let me go through his record collection I was 12 and picked up a Ken Hensley record mm. so I saw all this Uriah Heap reference to it I said you know maybe I should check more of their stuff out and I remember Wasp did uh, Easy Living and I was like okay <laughs> I gotta yeah. check out so you know started listening to more of that stuff too yeah so there's the but, rabbit hole you're a wasps yeah. wasp a wasps a wasp that's my band wasps no wasp <laughs> uh, so you're listening to wasp you hear a cover and that's and you go backwards and you start yeah. discovering and the uriah heath stuff man especially david byron years holy cow yes. and huge influence on how i even sing today i mean yeah. between him and dickinson and yes, even yes. ken hensley because i did like ken hensley's vocals on his solo record yes um but you know this this engineer uh really took an interest uh in with me and then he handed me a book for full cell and said hey this is the school i went to when they first started he's like it's a really good school if you uh go to school here and uh you know i would consider hiring you i was like 
whoa, all right. And Full Sail, of course, is recording production and stuff like yeah. that. That's what their yeah. specialty I mean, is. Back in the day, it was just uh, recording arts and film and video. Now, if you look them up, they got like 10 different types of degrees, like gaming, programming and stuff, mm. multimedia. But um, they were a little more focused back then. I, I've, I've heard mixed things about their programs now because it's like they're watered down a little bit yeah back in the day it was kind of a trade school that's where you went to learn a craft it wasn't it wasn't as specialized it was kind of broad it was like hey this is how we record albums this is how we edit film yeah you're right right and we got a taste of all of it because if you're going to do audio you need to know how it correlates with tv and film because you may be doing that and guess what i do yeah so uh it's it was a very at that time it was a very good school it was very well known so we made efforts and it took about a year a couple of years to to get me prepared to go there but yeah no it was hands down that whole experience through my teenage years of run you know as we call it in the south running sound <laughs> yeah running sound who's running uh, sound yeah yeah you you running sound yeah. uh, and Pretty much, that was it. A um, couple of years later, I, I was going to Full Sail in mid-90s. Mm. And then the rest, uh, you, you took this love of sound, this attention to the, the amazing details of everything, and then you start writing and performing music. So when did you, um, when did you get to uh, the Midwest? Well, uh, one of the guys that was in my class at full cell um was from the midwest he actually lived in iowa um and then my other buddy uh actually was from lacrosse wisconsin so both of these guys i kept in contact with really good became real good friends i mean we were constantly hanging out going to the beach because what, what do you do when you get out of class at one o'clock yeah let's go to daytona and right, right. um so we always kept contact and, and my whole thing is and that's the one thing that i'll never forget that i got out of full cell is that the one word that they said the thing that will give you success is networking yes and you always want to keep those contacts and i'm like you know what that's right and it paid off so a couple of years go by i'm mixing uh for several different places but i was put in a blues bar for a while a metal bar for a while mixing all these different bands did festivals for a sound company did recordings for public radio for live shows and stuff and um kind of was getting i was getting my feet pretty wet yeah and uh, and then my day job was working at a music store <laughs> that, that kind of worked yeah that'll work um, yeah and then i got that phone call from my buddy from iowa he said hey how's it going it's like well you know staying busy staying busy you know? yeah a um, couple of my bands were on the defunct because my guitar player had moved to florida and said uh, so kind of a little slow he's like uh you want a job i'm like doing what he said mobile television i was like um can you elaborate yeah he's like well you know the company i work for um, they were based out of Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He said they uh, said you'd be basically, you know, um, working sporting events, some occasional concerts. He's like, we we cover remote stuff, you know. I was like, so it's a TV, it's a TV studio on wheels. 
It's like, oh, well, that sounds interesting. He's like, well, if you want, I can uh, have airlines tickets faxed to you. Uh, come up here, do an interview, check out what we do. You know, hang out for a day and just kind of shadow for a you know a weekend. I'm like, yeah, cool, sounds good. So within two hours, I had airline tickets to fly to Cedar Rapids and do an interview with this company uh, to become one of their engineers for the TV truck. And I basically went there, got the job that weekend, and moved back to Iowa a week later, quit everything in North Carolina, left it, told my family. It's like, hey, I'm moving to Iowa. They're like, you're what? Yeah, what happened? (laughs) I I, I said, I got to do it. I said, something tells me that if I don't do this, it's I'm going to wish I had. Right. You know, and um, so I did. Hmm. And uh, started doing that for a couple of years. And then that same guy, (laughs) you see how this works here, but same guy quit the company that he brought me to to move to Chicago work for trio video which they did all the cubs the yes. socks all all the major league stuff so so about eight months later he's calling me up hey you want a job i said okay in chicago right i, I said you know chicago wasn't one of the cities that i was, really had on focus i was actually looking at denver and even some other places he's like well you'll get paid three times the amount that you are now I'm like oh <laughs> that's that, right. that's a game changer okay yeah i said well uh what, what do you want me to do he's like well can you be out this weekend for an interview <laughs> I said okay i went out there got the interview that got the job got the offer i wanted and moved back a week later <laughs> wow and your family's just getting used to your address in iowa <laughs> uh, no, no. Uh, that's I awesome mean, so because of working for this company and the, the thing is is you know we're sourced out from fox turner you name it um we're that's what we did i mean we had like six trucks in the fleet uh some of them full-size 53 foot expando trucks some couple of short ones just to cover all the different needs and different price ranges but wgn was one of the main clients and they got to know me over that course of time so because I chose to do TV, I couldn't play music. So I actually had put everything down for about seven years. Really? Yeah. It was just too time consuming? Very. I yeah. mean, you're on call. You're I on mean, call, there times, so there's no there way to, time, yeah. You get into the playoff season, man, you're gone for three months. Yeah. And and it can, it can wear on you. But then you get your paycheck. You're like, God, okay, well the overtime was worth it i guess but you know you don't get to spend it and or you do spend it but it's not in the right way or save the right way and you you get certain things you get too used to but the one thing that kept banging my head literally (laughs) see what i right 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 uh, i got you was that i had songs constantly running through my head that felt unfinished yes and when i I was previously married, bought a house in Aurora, and the one demand that I had is I needed a, uh, a basement in order to build a studio, and I was just going to build a studio was, so I yeah. could do this stuff in my own time. Because it will uh, gnaw at you, and and it's it, you know we're similar in that um, 
I work as a musician, but uh, my day job is a radio host. And so, yeah, even though you're doing something you love, the audio visual stuff and, and the sound engineering, you still got that stuff gnawing at you. And, yeah. and you got these melodies in your head or this set of lyrics and you're like, I got to get this stuff out or I'll explode. Yep. Yep. So you yes. got your, you got your studio together. I take it. Yep. Yep. And uh, started trying to get some of these ideas down. But I'll never forget the one thing that I uh, I did do. And it was the first recording I did. And I, I had to play everything because I was the only person there. So I played the drums, bass, guitars, did all the layering. And I did this arrangement of... Uh, it was Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and Dear Prudence, the way I morphed them together. Um but I made a metalish version of it. All right, so we got uh, <laughs> Dear Ludens. All right, very good. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Dear, dear um, Ludens, yeah. And so, when my now ex-wife showed up after work, said, "Hey, I, I just want you to hear something and just see what you think." She's like, well, "What?" I said, "Well, you know, I've been working downstairs." She's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." I said, "Well, I'll just listen to this and let me know what you think." And then when it was done, she looked at me. She's like, "What have you been doing this whole time?" Right. Why are you wasting your time? I'm like, "Well, this is kind of why I'm doing this." I said, "Because I can't stop." Yeah. So there you go yeah so she knew you played and she knew that you were creative but you were going to work every day and doing yeah. the, the cubs games or whatnot and then you blow her mind with this and yeah okay so you so that was that kind of a kick in the pants to maybe i need to prioritize what i'm doing for a day job and get back to music a little bit yep yeah you got it and there were plenty of other people that i worked with doing sports when i played it for them they were all saying the same thing yeah so finally my boss at trio one day so that after doing this for a couple of years and recording different things i got a phone call from an old drummer that i played with in north carolina said hey what's going on i'm like um you know explain my whole situation living in yeah. chicago working in television Builds a studio, trying to do some recordings. Like, hey, you want to get the old band back together? Back then, I had a band called Disciple Thirteen, and um, you know, we back then we were playing Dream Theater, Fate's Warning, and then also wrote a bunch of our own stuff, Iron Maiden. You know, we also did too. But I was like, well, yeah, you know, because he was in the army and he was getting out and he was looking for somewhere to move. He's like, well, I'll move to Chicago. So. I was like, well, it's, that's how that works because I've been writing a bunch. And so I started looking for names, and that's Sacred Dawn was born in January 2005. Yeah. Uh, tried rehearsing, but with my schedule, you know, I would get that phone call hey, you need to go to Cleveland for four days to cover baseball. Right. Uh, it was impossible. It was impossible, and everything's on the weekends. You know, and anytime you do baseball, you're there for four days. So it. it I was really getting stressed out with trying to make this work. I had this guy move there. Well, I got a phone call from my boss, and he said, look, I know what you're trying to do, and you know it's not going to work. I said, well, what am I supposed to do? He said, you want to work freelance. I said, what do you mean? He's like, work for us when you're available. I said, you'll do that? He said, yeah. 
And wow. I said, well, that's, I said, dude, I said, you don't know how much of a, you know, I appreciate it. Yeah, I bet when I that said, phone call first started, you're thinking you're going to say, don't let the door hit you. But then right. he saw, yeah. he saw, A, enough of your expertise. He didn't want to lose you. No. But he knew that this was gnawing at you and you needed to approach that. So let's make a deal. That's excellent. You got it. Yeah. So I started working freelance. And during that time, uh, couple of the guys that i was working with on the gn game said hey you know that they're, they're needing somebody to mix bands for the morning show over at wgn i'm like oh really i said what, what's involved he's like well you got to get up at 3 a.m every morning he's like but you know um but you're out by noon i'm like oh well um uh, who do what do i who do i need to talk to he's like oh go here, here call this guy he's the one that schedules everybody i said and this would just be freelance he's like yeah that's, we're, we're all freelancers like oh okay went over there and talked to the guy and they started using me right away excellent uh, and so I was able to bounce back and forth and over a couple of years they figured out the rest of the trades that I could do so I wasn't just mixing bands but you know the rest is history I've been working basically for WGN for 21 years now that'll work That'll yeah. work, and and they help they accommodate you when you have a tour and stuff. They don't even bat an eye. They just said, "Tell us how it is when you get back." Yeah, and we'll we'll have work for you. That's excellent, yeah. man. Yeah, it's they, they, you know, I couldn't ask for uh, a better situation, and you know how courteous they've been, and I don't have to worry about coming back and not having a job. I have to attribute it to my guests that I've had on that every time I interview folks and, and especially this, this particular interview, it, if people listen to it, they may listen to it once to find out about Lothar and, and, and his career and their, but if you start listening to these podcasts, there's so much business acumen that we share because so, we've been through so many different scenarios that I think, any budding entertainer or artist can really put together a collegiate type, uh, you know, learning experience with some of the information that we gather. So thank you for that. And I want to get into the music stuff as a musician, when a bandmate brings a song they've written. Okay. Yep. And as a collaborator, what's your process Lothar, for uh, adding a guitar part or putting together a solo for it, what, what's the first thing you do when you hear a new piece of music from a bandmate or someone that wants you to work for them in the studio? Uh, well, I guess it really depends on which band it is because, because of the fact that I've grown up with so many different genres in my head. Mm -hmm. There's a different approach to everything. Right. Uh, there's There are those moments when you hear these prog metal bands and there's so much going on like you know dream theater of course one yes. of my favorite bands and then you dumb it down well i don't want to say dumb it down but sometimes less is more and that's one of the big lessons i learned with the skull is i don't play the same way in the skull i i'm still me but that's right. because again i've absorbed so much of what i've heard over the years i incorporate to me what I feel like is a proper melody. So like if there's a solo that I need to go into a section, um, I'm not thinking about riffs, right? It's, it is not a riff. It's a melody. And it's so because of like, think about like when you hear a big symphony, that one piccolo trumpet that's doing, or like an even penny lane, you know, the Beatles, when it, yes, 
it's a melody it's not somebody just going all over the place just to show how fast they can play and i like to really enhance more of what's going on as opposed to trying to cover it up i mean there's moments when i think being a little flashy is really cool just again to get it out of your system hey look i can do this and if but, it fits the mood of the song or the piece or if you're live. But I but one thing about your guitar playing is it's there's a lot of detail and a lot of emotion. And I think when you're talking about guys that are shredders and they're just flying, you know, a thousand miles an hour and there's a million notes filling the air, it becomes more of an acrobatic exercise than an actual artistic expression. And with your guitar playing, even when you're playing fast, your choice of notes always has emotion behind it am i hitting that right does that you are exactly yeah exactly because i've heard you play fast and it's like okay that's fine but it's still a fits the song and b your choice of notes is always helping to tell the story of the song and and b it's always got emotion attached to it yep yeah yep that's, and it's funny you mentioned Dream Theater because Mike Portnoy is, uh, I teach drums and I always tell kids, here's a guy that played extremely complex stuff in the context of Dream Theater, but then he's with Winery Dogs and he's just an absolute groove player, but it's him oh, both times. Oh, it's, you know, oh my God. Did, did you ever see when he did The Amazing Journey and then a couple of years later did Yellow Matter Custard? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those, he mimics, was, uh, first of all, mimicking mimicking Ringo takes time because you have because his parts are so unorthodox but playing Keith Moon to a T is almost impossible because I don't even think he knew what he was doing when he was doing it you know no. it was force of nature and yeah Portnoy killed it man are you it was an, that was those were both amazing shows yes I, I, I remember for the amazing journey that yes Dirty Nellies and Palatine was packed yeah oh my god it was packed but that was a great lineup. I don't know if they could have picked a better lineup. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely I mean, correct. Between Paul Gilbert and Sheehan and even Billy Sharon. Sheehan was up there, yeah. Sharon was a good part to cover for that. He, you know. Yeah, he's, he's mean, got Daltry. Uh, he's got that Daltry feel in his voice. <laughs> he's a great singer. And I think, I think you know, he the whole thing with Van Halen uh, kind of pooped on him. But it's, it's, you know, I think it was just an ill fit or maybe it was bad timing because I actually saw him perform with Van Halen when Gary Sharon was doing uh, that, you know, the vocalist part. And I thought he was good, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and I, and I actually like uh, Extremes, Three Sides to Every Story. I think it's a great, great record. record. Great it's record. Great record. The other album. That's the one with uh, Stop the World, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. What a what an epic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that that was a concept record from beginning to end. I'm going to come um, over to your house and go through your record collection. We're going to spin <laughs> tunes together. Yeah, that would yeah. be fun. Well, you know, um, when you mention you know changing your style and your feel for, but that's the mark of a professional. And so now, having worked with the Skulls, Sacred Dawn, Divinity Compromise they all play heavy music but their styles are completely different so you completely have to different. adapt to that and your approach yeah. has to change to that now as a sound engineer i mean i'm just the story of you messing around with tape recorders in order to get distortion before you had an amp that's that's golden stuff man and so you've <laughs> got to be both a, a help to a producer and when you're in the studio or 
a bane to their existence because having worked as a sound engineer and producer and all the work you've done with sound, uh, you must know exactly what you want ex- and you possess this ear for how something needs to hear. It needs to sound rather and what you need to hear. Right. So has and that ever come up in the studio? Oh yeah. 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 And, and, and a lot of times if there's something I'm wanting to do, uh, or if there's something I've heard before, I'll look up who the engineer is and see if they have any uh, stuff online. Yeah. Even nowadays, um, yeah. there's there's little things. Even now, I, I here's the thing: you never stop learning. Ever. You never. And 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 I'm again, I'm still a sponge. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I love doing this podcast because I get guys like you on. I had Tom Leopold who wrote for Seinfeld. I had you know Terry Bozio on, who's an amazing drummer, and it's like. I I keep these little notebooks full of little items of uh, of business, you know, business advice that that I keep and I share them with people. But um, it's funny we were talking about producers and how when you go back and listen, who who do who was the engineer on that? Well, I, um, I, yeah, I really like the way Devin Townsend blends vocals and on his mixes. Yeah, uh, there was there's been some stuff like on some of his even his earlier records on his Devin Townsend project stuff. I'm like, man, what's he doing to get that thickness, you know, in the vocals? Cause you know, like when Def Leppard did hysteria, they just bring all the guys in there and they are, they sing all the same part like a million times and then they blend them in. Um, but I found out he was doing it all off of, uh, just four vocals. <laughs> really? And yeah. T- uh, uh, track duplication. Um, uh, because if you can create a different, if you do track duplication, you can duplicate the same part two more times and do different effects on each one of those tracks. Right. And when you start to blend in, you start getting spatialization that you didn't get before. Uh, it was it was like just little things like that. You start going, man. Yes. Good idea. You yeah. know. Uh, you know, everybody back in the day used to when they you know you're mixing off analog tape. That's not something you can just do and duplicate a track because you're only given so much tape space with yeah. digital it's, it's endless different, yeah it's yeah. a different ball of wax and it's funny you mentioned Devin because he's he's hit or miss for me because I, it, 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 but it's also exciting I'll always buy Devin Townsend stuff just to hear it because I'm happy I like the idea of him out there making records and some of them touch me and some of them I'm like, Oh, this is, this is, I, I got to go back to it. I'm going to have to distance myself and come back to it. Um, right. But you do, you find little things. And so that vocal made you go and research how he did it. It's right. it, when I was, I was talking to someone about singing harmony with a band. And I remember seeing, uh, a documentary about yes okay and it was going back uh-huh. to chris squire now we're taking the interview full circle chris squire and john anderson were singing going for the one and for the first time i had ever seen people do this usually when you're singing harmony you're singing the same way the same phrasing but right. anderson and going for the one is singing going for the one and chris squire is going going for the one and he's he's like he's changing the cadence of the of the delivery of the line and i was like that's pretty remarkable that's just those yeah. little details that blow us away you know and that was one thing about yes i always loved how they did their harmony arrangements oh and, amazing you know having sung in uh the boys choir when i was a kid i that was a learning harmonies and all this stuff. yes i i actually thrived to do harmonies 
So that's why every time I'm in a band, I have no issue of being a backup singer whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, you know, being front guy or whatever, that's fine. Uh, but I actually, even in Divinity, I would give the main line to whoever uh, to the backup singer and I would do the harmonies. Yeah. In a lot of cases. Because it's kind of amazing to me how some people get lost in that. It's like they can only hear the main line. They, they, so when they try to do another harmony, they're not always hitting it or they'll get one half step off. And it's for me, I just, I hear it right away. Right. Well, now, uh, so, so obviously listening to you play guitar, there's 10,000 hours. You know how they say it's 10,000 hours behind it because it's effortless and it's, and it's beautiful the way you play. And the same with the singing. Now, now, a lot of people, they don't take, they think singing is secondary, that it's not an instrument. And I think you need to shed light on that for some up-and-coming musicians. <laughs> oh, no, it absolutely is. Yeah. Um, main reason is, uh, you think about it. If your fingers are making noise on something, if your hands are hitting a drum, your voice is hitting air. Yeah. Uh, it, it's still physics. It's still your you're using something that has the ability to change pitch. So it's asinine to think that the voice is not, or that the body itself isn't right. uh, an instrument. Uh, we are the instrument. Uh, the specific item that we're using is also an instrument, but both parts have to coincide. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, even think about the, the different timbres you get out of different people, just like you pick up a different guitar or a different drum, they're all going to sound different. And the voice is absolutely uh, the same way. Right. Um, I mean, think about these opera singers they had back in the day. You know, they why they sing so loud is because they had to be projected to be heard. But some of these guys, like think of like the Pavarotti's, how big they are. The size of their body even helps with the... <laughs> how loud they can sing something. Yeah, with those uh, notes hitting the air, right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's... No, it it, it is an instrument. Uh, yeah. There's no way to, to not... But uh, I, I think people just... They, they, they may warm up and they may... And I, and I think you hit on a perfect spot. They, they might warm up, they might train their voice, but they don't um, look at the physics of it. Like, you know, with a guitar, right. we might think okay, this guitar is different than that guitar and I have to make sure I'm getting my fingertip on there because my pad's not getting the same note that I might on that other guitar or with these drums, I may hit a little bit closer to the rim because they're birch and not maple. It's the yep. same thing with a voice, you know? Oh, yeah. You have to look at all the physics of it. And so when you talk about practicing, um, teachers, you know, tell kids to practice, obviously their instrument, but music educators always talk about good practicing so can you what would you consider good practicing practices well there are there are always those people that whenever they pick up their instrument they're, I'll, I'll call them more of a hobbyist more than a maybe a serious musician they'll they'll play their same two or three songs that they know or their same three or four chords never really going beyond that and that's okay it keeps your fingers moving uh but I did seek out, you know, some teachers back in the day. Uh, I wanted to know more. Um, it was just a matter of how do I do this? I know I want to do this, and I know what it sounds like, but how do I do this? Right. And and getting proper instruction uh, is important. But you know how that goes. Somebody goes and takes lessons. They don't do their homework. They come back in, 
and the teacher's like did you even work on this right and i actually tried to teach lessons back in the day i had two success rates and i had a couple of failures and the the failures were what really discouraged me more than anything but it was just they, they didn't even put any effort into it i'm like i feel like i'm just taking your money yeah it's yeah. you know and i i don't want to do it if it's not gonna be any gratification for either side i'm not hearing you work on it and you're not getting any better no and i've had parents get mad at me for that particular well i'll say and i try to be diplomatic about it i don't think i'm the right teacher for him or her and uh, they say why and i say well i demand a certain level of practice or else we're wasting each other's time and i'm taking your money for something that's not progressing and i've had parents get mad at me but i i can only i can only be honest with you know if the kid's not yeah. if you ask a kid do you want to play drums and they tell you no well yeah. why would i <laughs> i can't yeah. force this kid to sit here with me for a half hour yeah you know? yeah you know yeah it's, it, and it's so good practicing that that's that's a um that you have to stretch and you have to and when you mentioned being able like when you brought to your teacher i hear this thing in my head i have to learn how to play it i think that's the mark of an artist as opposed to a hobbyist or someone who you know if you if you, you're trying to play something that you're hearing right. i think you're on the right track yeah i mean yeah. my god when i learned finger tapping <laughs> yeah you know what i'm saying yeah like, was, that was oh, it I, now I can play hot for teacher. So I yeah. learned hot for teacher when I was 13. <laughs> right. And I was just constantly on that dude. I was like, I mean, finger tapping was it. I do it a little bit once in a while, but again, there's if, only one person that mastered it. He was honest. the monster. Yeah. He, he was, was the monster. monster. Yeah. Good old Eddie. And so what do you, what are the biggest mistakes that you find musicians make when they're going in a recording studio, especially early on in their careers? <sighs> they go in with the wrong kind of expectations. Uh, I think it's one of the big things. Um, and that is not really understanding the process. Um, I think for any band that is going into a studio situation, and especially if it's a credible engineer, uh, one of the things to really do is let's have a meeting and let's discuss how this is going to go. So that they understand as a band how this is going to work and how would you guys like to go about it? Do you guys like all playing together in the same room? Uh, can it just be one guitar player and the drummer? You know, there's all sorts of ways to go about it. Now, mm. of course, since I work by myself a lot, I'll just put a click track on and I'll play my guitar to it so that I can just play drums to it after that. Mm -hmm. And then I've got guitar and click. And then I just start layering. But you got some guys, especially like blues bands and jazz bands, they're so used to playing together mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily want their instruments all in the same room because you don't want bleed over or do you want that kind of live ambience mm -hmm. and you don't care you want it to feel more like a live situation you know what i'm saying it's like yeah. so i think having that pre-production meeting before anything starts and not just going in and saying hey we're going to record a record we're starting today here's the first song and you start cranking it out and you start watching the guy behind the board pulling his hair out right because they either they're not prepared or they don't understand how it really works and then that helps cut down i think some of the frustration and anxiety a lot of people get because if they know what they're expecting this is how long it can take how detailed do you want to get you know this could take if we record every day for eight to ten hours a day is this going to be a one week or a two-week process a month you know 
you know, I like there's certain engineers out there that, you know, the big label guys that if they take on a project, they'll get they'll lock in for a month. Yeah, and right. You got like the Metallica record, the monster record took what, a year and a half to get done, but right. that was because James was trying to clean up. Yeah. You know, and there, you know, not that whole thing. I, God, that movie made me hate Lars more, but uh, <laughs> uh, but I don't, I don't want, I don't want to say that. But you know what I mean. It, 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 you, you I support. saw that movie. Yeah, I saw it. You, I was. Uh, if I was... you're a brother, then you support. Yes, <laughs> especially with something like an addiction. I'm, I'm sorry, but you got to support. And, yeah, uh, he had a reason he wanted to clean up. Whether people thought it was for the better or worse, you know what? Again, that's yeah. that's for him to decide. And so that album took longer. Um, you know, did it, did it, and some stuff gets done a lot faster. I mean, I, gosh, you know, I remember there for a while. Uh, some people were pumping out two or three records a year. Well, and, and, and when you were talking about jazz musicians, and they know exactly uh, what the other guy sounds like, and so they may have an engineer that says, hey, I'm getting bleed through, and like you said, they might want that old Miles Davis sound where it sounds like the band's in the room. ECM, which was a big label in the uh, 80s and 90s, they would give you two days. You got two days in the studio. That's what we're paying for. Because they weren't selling yeah. any records at any mass level. So two days and those cats walked in knowing exactly what they wanted and um, I had the pleasure of interviewing Ron Carter a few weeks ago one of my great musical heroes and he was talking about how every situation is different and he just wants to walk in knowing exactly what their expectations are and this is from a master musician you know he's just, yeah. what do you want from me and so as an engineer you probably uh let me manage your expectations first before we get in there and just start playing and rolling tape. Yeah. yeah you kind of have to, because what you will do is you end up wasting your time and their money. Yeah. Right. Or some, or somebody's money. Yeah. Uh, and right. that's, it's, it's a lot better. I think to start off on the right foot and be on the same playing field. I mean, I, I think bands should interview studios just like studios should interview bands. Do we really want to work with each other? Right. Are we the right uh, think, fit? Right. Yeah. I think it's I think it's important because that ultimately is going to affect what your end product is, and that's ultimately what everybody's wanting. <laughs> yeah, well, it goes back to you saying that you know when you listen to a particular piece of music and you hear and you say, "I want to find out who that engineer is." You know, Steve Albini is not the same as Todd Rundgren in the studio. Is not the same as uh, you know, at any anybody that's in there. You know, twisting knobs and making sure that the that the uh, sound is correct. So yeah, you have to interview the person and find out what they can bring to the table as a producer as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So let's let's talk about uh, running a label, which a an independent record label never an easy task, and in this day and age, it's really got to have some challenges. So tell us about not only the history of your record label, but uh, what you're doing now with it. Well, uh, Kumran's technically been in existence since 1991, and that that is because, again, with my first Christian rock band, uh, my father not only helped find the studios but uh, when he started talking to this producer that we started working with uh, he said well you know um, having your own label and being licensed because you know we're thinking about stuff like getting airplay and all this stuff it's like well you want to be licensed which then means basically starting uh, a label or a publisher and 
so we started looking at all sorts of different names um and my father uh came up with the idea because what are the Qumran caves what do they contain they contain the Qumran records the scrolls the oh yes scrolls. okay yes and and him being a pastor and there was a title it all made sense and i'm like wow your dad sounds you know. like a pretty amazing cat. Is he still with us? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So so this is your dad, and now he's a pastor. So now the fact that it was a Christian metal band, did that help him, or did he was he a metal head? Did he like it? Um, he, well, I, I think early on he wasn't really sure. I think it took me uh, having him drag me and my friends to an Iron Maiden concert <laughs> in Charlotte. <laughs> for yeah. the somewhere on tour <laughs> but he got to see Dude, the hard work that goes into it yeah he got to see it and also how extremely loud it was uh but uh, i remember uh the, the the tune he enjoyed the most was ryan to the ancient mariner um but he's i i think he started to get it more uh, i mean obviously he knew i was listening to bands like Ingve and he heard all the classical influence but uh yeah <laughs> No, he, cool. he, he he saw what was involved. So awesome, yeah. yeah. So now, so what's the current uh, status? Uh, is it for putting out your stuff? I mean, you, well, it started out that way, yeah, and that's really all it ever did. And then you know, again, Sagradon at one point was signed to Nightmare Records out of Minnesota. We were on Dark Star, but I also you know two had uh released uh earlier releases uh through Kumran, but i never really had utilized it for like 20 years uh it wasn't until really about the point when divinity was getting geared up in 2009 uh spillage was uh originally a a project idea now they're a full-fledged band yeah uh, but um they wanted to release their stuff and i'm like well i mean i can release it through me i got publishing i can get it registered and all that stuff uh so it kind of started out small like that but i mean i gotta be honest it's like you know there's just knowing how a lot of these deals work mm -hmm. um so many of these labels are set up in such a way to where ultimately at the end of the day you're not the one that's taking home the money no and and when people finally wake up and realize oh they got a one million dollar recording contract right mm -hmm. okay you know what that really means well, yeah that is not your money look at the horror story of uh slayer when they were out on tour and dave lombardo said they played 100 dates and he came home with sixty-seven thousand dollars. i saw that same thing it was like some drum clinic right yes and it makes yes. you it sends chills down <laughs> i i felt I, I i mean i felt a lot of sympathy for him because i'm like yeah dude i i understand i mean you you think you're playing in front of all these people that all oh, people are like oh they got to be raking it in yeah not every guy no not every guy i remember the band fastball when they when i was at a rock station in joliet and uh, they had the number one song you know the way you remember that yeah. uh and they were on every format they were on adult contemporary they were on rock they were on alternative they were on mainstream rock and they pull up in a in a conaline van and these guys were worn out and i i was talking to him and he's like oh we can't wait to get off a major label 
<laughs> the more the more popular this song becomes, yeah. the farther in debt we are to the record. You're better off doing it yourself, you know. Yeah, you well, you, and they you still are. do. Yeah, and that's really the main reason. I I feel like if I don't have control of what's going on or what's happening to my inventory or what's what's really going on out there, I don't know unless I have access to to this information. Right. And, and again, and they're doing their part, but when sometimes you don't get those updates or you don't see that check, mm-hmm. or you're told that this is going to happen and you never see it or whatever the excuses are. Um, well, the farther away from the, the family, yeah, the farther away from the family, and I'm by that I mean, you know, friends and bandmates. Uh, you don't even know how many T-shirts you're selling a night if you if you're not careful, no. and that's you know no. that's crucial. And, well, and some of these labels were offering these, you know, those 360 deals where they control all of it, merch and everything. Uh uh-uh. uh no, yeah. no, 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 no. They don't get to do that. They might get your music, but you're your bread and butter is absolutely in the shirts because you can sell more items that way yeah you have a cd you got a cd you got vinyl you got vinyl if you got one release that's that's all you got you can make multiple pieces of merch mm-hmm. why would you give that money to somebody else yeah so you do it yourself I, Perfect. You do it yourself yeah. and but as, as you've Umar, proven in this interview it takes a lot of dedication and a lot of hard work and ultimately it's rewarding if you don't skip those uh yeah. steps and you boy you put what a, what a story it's a pleasure man did you have fun yeah, yeah. oh yeah good <laughs> how's your beautiful bride tell us about you recently married congratulations yeah, yeah thank you thank you yeah. uh no she's she's wonderful and uh the biggest support and fan i've got yeah um, you know i i don't even have to bat an eye and she's helping with whatever i need so yeah oh no she your wife uh brings light to everyone she meets and and my wife and i uh have talked about that you know that she's one of those people that when you meet her you don't just uh talk to her you feel her you you you, she's there with you she's in the moment with you and and she cares and i I think that's and when when you guys got married i was very very happy so god bless Uh, you both and uh thank you you have given us a lot to uh to think about and and i wish you all the continued success now lother what let's plug some stuff what do you got going on with these bands oh well um as i said with the skull um we're kind of waiting for the whole uh process with the family uh, to finally have their moment which i think was the right thing to do it it needed to stay private because it could be a madhouse or out of control what I think it's going to do is we're, we're talking about, we're, we're going to do some kind of celebration or tribute to him. Yeah. Um, what that is, I can't really say yet. Uh, but as far as the record goes, we're, we're going to talk, uh, and see if there is a way to maybe finish it. Mm. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, that's a tough thing. Uh, that's, you know, it wouldn't be his voice. We have his ideas, but yeah, yeah. We'll, maybe we'll see what maybe happens. get people uh, get multiple people to uh, to well, sing his stuff, and that's that is a very strong possibility that could yeah. happen. You never know. Uh, there's you you know it. There's enough people he's influenced, enough oh. bands that he's influenced that incredible. Um, I've already been told from a couple of 
close friends from some other known doom bands over in Sweden that uh, they'll do whatever they can to help mm. uh, with this whole stuff and uh, uh, whatever we need. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. Um, so we have a we have a huge world of support around us. It's very appreciated. Yeah, well, the metal the Uh, metal community worldwide is like what the punk movement was early on, and they've always shared that brotherhood and sisterhood amongst the members and fans. And I think uh, whatever happens to um, to keep Eric Wagner's uh, legacy alive, it'll be monumental. So yeah, and and obviously I'm a hundred percent there when that happens. Cool. sacred dawn we are actually in the process of recording our first full-length record in 10 years all right um this is very exciting because i feel very passionate about this music um we wrote this music for ourselves we didn't write it with any intention in mind this is just what came out and i and i hope people receive it the same way we feel about it while we're recording it um divinity uh we pretty much have most of the new record written um there's just a few things we got to flesh out but obviously we lost a couple of members uh over a couple of years ago and me and jeff treadwell can have continued to write and our drummer mike Musel is in both sacred on and divinity um we did get a new bass player uh jacob Bobrowski out of uh Borowski out of uh, Wisconsin. Uh, you got a Wisconsin Polish guy. We got, we so got you got that Wisconsin hardcore guy. work ethic. There you go. Yeah, 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 exactly. And he plays cello apparently too. So that, <laughs> Get it on the record. Get it on yeah, the record. Are you too. kidding I'm me? Already, I'm already thinking. Just don't uh, be taping any scraps of metal to it to get a different effect. No, no. <laughs> uh, we we have modern technology. Oh, there you that. go. I, I, I was I was broke back then. That's fantastic. Uh, That's a great story, man. I love but, it. But uh, you know, uh, aside from those bands, which both of those will be coming out on uh, Qumran, uh, we actually have one of our uh, new signy bands uh fierce atmosphere is doing a release show this saturday at reggie's so mm. getting kind of pumped for that as well so i mean that's the I 18th got, that's the 18th yeah of reggie's. yeah well yeah. This, this isn't gonna air until monday but that's okay oh yeah yeah no. yeah that's all right and uh um and then we got uh new spillage coming out i got some more diggeth coming from holland i got you know we're we're pretty busy with a bunch of releases right now that are coming pretty quick and where can uh, people go oh, i'm sorry go ahead well yeah they get well uh most of these releases uh will be accessible on your worldwide amazons and mm-hmm. every everywhere or you can always go directly to www.kumranrecords.com that's with a q yeah q-u-m-r-a-n um, yeah. yeah excellent and we you know we'll have all the releases on our site if people can't find them anywhere um but you know there's stuff that's going to be out in stores you know um digital download for most of it uh it's the only one yeah i mean at digith we were supposed to have them over here last year and strangely enough they were supposed to open up for trouble in milwaukee Mm. um but because of COVID, that all got shut down. So we're going to try and get them back over next year. Do you find there's uh, people awesome. ordering ordering your stuff on uh, vinyl more than these these days? 
the vinyl just well yeah i mean more of the vinyl but they, there have been some cds moving there there is a little bit of a resurgence of cds and i've yeah. been reading about it that i think again people use spotify for what it is and these other streaming services but at the end of the day you still don't get the full album experience that way right. unless and in, in, in the in the same fashion and i think too and <laughs> this is just my opinion uh i think a lot of people are tired of their computers and their phones losing all of their crap losing and, everything and to, yes and, and having to re-download everything and yeah you got the cd you can just there you go pop it in uh, take it with you whatever you need yeah and it's still digital and if you lose it you don't have to go through all this again or possibly oh well somebody gave me this you know so mm -hmm. you don't actually own it you yeah, know no. so uh i love it. it it's definitely i i think it's not going to completely go away uh for a while uh, after i read that one article so we'll no, see no, but, no uh, tactile tactile uh people like to have a collection and they like to have liner notes and they like to hold something you know i still buy vinyl because i like to do like i did when i was a kid i like to uh listen yeah. to it and read the liner notes and look at the the gatefold uh, inside and those yes albums are you kidding me you spend the, oh, spend the whole afternoon looking at the roger dean uh, artwork i know I know yeah. that's that. That's what drew me in all the time. I'm like, yes. That, hey, you open it up. Here's the good part. That's back when gatefolds were like huge in the seventies. <laughs> yeah, everybody opened up. I remember Hawkwind Space Ritual. It opened up eight different ways. It was like, <laughs> wow, this is like a wall poster. I, I even I even bought a, another copy of uh, Aqualung, Jethro Tull, but it's the Stephen Wilson remix. Yes, it's a full. There's a full book in it. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. He I does. Mean, he's a music fan, man. He he's such a great guy. Oh God! Yeah, and Porcupine yeah. Tree. I forget about it. I could listen to them all day. Well, all I wanted day. to. We got to put you on the spot before we let you go. So, Lothar, five albums that changed your life. Oof. Okay. Uh, right off the bat, close to the edge from yes. Um, Peace of mind from Iron Maiden. Uh, the first Ingve release. Uh, Demons and Wizards from Uriah Heep yes. and Proud Words on Dusty Shell from Ken Hensley. Wow, look at that. Okay. And your go-to movie, when you can't figure out what you want to watch, this is the one you'll watch. <laughs> okay, give me a second here. Uh, wedding Singer. <laughs> oh, wow. That's the surprise of the interview. Holy cow. <laughs> Hey man! Uh, hey, when he starts singing "Love Stinks," that's just something. That is, there's something special about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wish you all the continued success in the world, man. Thank you so much. This has been a long time coming, Lothar, and uh, I look forward to seeing you and your wonderful bride really soon. Same here, man. Same here. I appreciate it. The Mike Tamano Happening.